If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we'll talk to U.S. soccer icon and Fox soccer analyst Alexi Lalas about his music since, you know, he has released as many studio albums as Nirvana. True story. And we'll also introduce you to one of the world's most incredible and awesome athletes, Regus Woods, a double amputee Paralympian who also just happens to dabble in motorcycle stunt racing. We will also slam some hammers, give you some distractions, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me in studio this week, a fresh-faced sports media strategist who has long time with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. It's Adam Millard. Adam, how is life in Chicago? Good, man. Warm. It has been warm. It's also been somewhat cool. I have no idea which day you're talking about. I was going to say, it's been cooler. It's been nice. Not nearly as humid. It's not been cool. I'm sleeping with the windows open. That's all I'm saying. All right, whatever. I would never open a window in my room. Bugs, man. (laughs) Really? Do you not have screens on your windows? Bugs get through screens, Joe. What? Do you really? Wait, wait. You don't open your windows to let air in? Kelly will. I, I would never open a window in my house if I never had to. What? Seriously? Yeah. What about oh, the fresh air? I like, yeah, fresh air comes guys, from guys, air conditioning guys. units. <laughs> fresh air comes from the air conditioning, hey, buddy. Hey, Adam, Joe, like, no. you guys know Brad. I mean, <laughs> like, are you surprised by this? Like, this shouldn't be surprising, but it always like, are is. we going to get into the whole gum thing tonight? Is tonight no. the episode where nope. the gum thing comes out? <laughs> no, nope. And on that note, back to me. <laughs> also, I think that's episode 100. Yeah. We to get to the bottom of this. Also, right. joining the show. From our Brooklyn Bureau, our Emmy-winning sports TV producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, what's happening in New York? Uh, you know, just a good... It's been great here in New York. Been out on my bicycle. Uh, football season is looming, and that's kind of a bummer. I enjoyed this summer quite a bit. Yeah, I bought a bike from Walmart. It's already broken in a few places. And I also had to put a cruiser seat on it because the regular seat hurt my buns Uh-oh. <laughs> and my taint. <laughs> so now I just have a huge old lady seat on my bike. Yes, they come. Don't open the windows and I ride basically Pee Wee's bike from Pee Wee's Big Adventure, guys. And do you sleep in a coffin? <laughs> what the fuck? If it was clean, I would. We do only tape at night. I don't. Yeah. Know. Also joining the show in studio, our producer extraordinaire. Put your hands together for Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, what's a 40-year-old millennial doing these days for fun? Um, I'm preparing to go to Egypt this weekend. My girlfriend and I are going to Egypt for two weeks. It'll so. be awesome. That's on my wife's bucket list, man. We're excited. It's going to be cool. So, yeah, that's we're just prepping and uh, getting ready. Cool. All right. Yeah. On this show, we do not just invite people on behind the scenes. We do it publicly for your benefit and to call out the people in the sports world who are doing interesting things and therefore deserve to have the forum 
to talk about them. We call this process slamming the hammer. Adam, who do you want to slam the hammer on this week? I, so I don't know why it took me so long to start listening to this podcast, but um, the fighter and the kid um, with Brian Callen and Brendan Schaub, it's one of my favorite podcasts. I think I was overwhelmed um, with the prospect of having uh, to catch up, but now that I'm in a time of the work year where I don't have as many calls as I normally do during the day when I'm working on stuff, I've been casually listening and catching up on uh, old episodes of The Fighter and the Kid. And one of the most famous episodes from their show, well, it's really two parts. So Brendan Schaub, he fought uh, 15 fights in the UFC while he was starting Fighter and the Kid. It was like year one when they were picking up steam. And he went on Joe Rogan's podcast after losing a fight to Travis Brown where they spent about an hour and a half of Joe Rogan telling him why he, and Joe Rogan is his friend. Uh, and Joe Rogan for an hour and a half told him why he didn't think that he'd ever be the, the heavyweight champion. <laughs> oh, really? Um, that his, his fight game wasn't what it was supposed to be. It was one of the most uncomfortable moments I've ever heard, but you could see the wheels turning for Brendan Schaub. His, he probably wasn't at the time going to be, a top contender in the heavyweight division, and he had this other side hustle or distraction that was really starting to pick up steam, and he eventually made the decision, um, I, I want to say maybe a year after, that he would give up fighting and do the fighter of fighter and the kid full-time along with the enterprises related to the podcast. Um, so I kind of want to talk to him about that transition, Um of a, a guy who was an athlete and very much identified himself as a fighter uh, and making that transition to another kind of celebrity status as one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Cause not an easy decision. Uh, he had made, he had first made the decision to move down to the lightweight division and fight as a lightweight and then said, you know what? There's so much going on with the UFC. I think it's, I'm, I'm done with this. You know, in the spirit of that Joe Rogan episode, because I've heard that too, I'd like to spend the next 90 minutes or so convincing you maybe this podcast thing isn't going to work out, Adam. Uh, oh, it's clearly not working out, but I get to see you every week. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep the windows closed. Garrett, who do you want to slam the hammer to? All right, my hammer this week, uh, as we just indicated... With Brad, uh, who I've known a very long time, there's a bit of a gum thing, and that can come out in good time. But my hammer is going to a ma man. My hammer is going to a man named Rob Nelly Nelson. Why would I hammer Rob Nelson? Because he's dead. No, <laughs> no, no. Rob Nelson is the former minor league pitcher who invented. Big League Chew. Oh, cool. Gross. <laughs> Gross. He saw too many of his colleagues chewing tobacco, so he invented this alternative. Uh, as the Washington Post put it, for folks of a certain age, that would be Brad my age, this makes him some sort of patron saint of youth baseball because the moment came along in 1980 – it freed them from the yucky, gag-inducing charade of chewing tobacco. 
he is not Brad's patron saint, but I would love to talk to him about his invention, his entrepreneurialism, finding a life after minor league baseball, where, as the Washington put it, his bu- Washington Post put it, his bubble has yet to burst. Oh. So, yeah. Rob Nelson, consider yourself hammered. Let's let's chew the fat and some oh. big league chew. Just- <laughs> Brad does look physically ill. Yeah, he does. I, He's not it's the, it may be the puns. It may be the gum. I have no idea. I love big league chew for the first 15 seconds until it runs out of flavor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's oh. basically gum. The best <laughs> like, I and worst. But I mean, literally... Like, no taste after the first 15 to 30 seconds. Disgusting. Disgusting. Yeah, but there's nothing like opening up one of those packs and just getting a whole handful of it. Oh, it's so good. going to make me sick. It's Uh, the best. Yeah. Joe gave me the I don't have a hammer signal, the throat slash. You might get fined for that in Roger Goodell's universe. I'm going to to hammer Iggy Andre Iguodala. Hardcore into the technology space. I didn't realize this, but he was at TechCrunch. He did a uh, NBA or NBPA, uh, the NBA's Player Association. He did a technology summit and panel with with them. Uh, highly engaged in Silicon Valley with investing and that kind of stuff. So I want to talk to him about the uh, the investment game, the technology game, and uh, see what he's got on the horizon for the twilight of his uh, career. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, another guy who retired from football and has gotten involved in Silicon Valley is Patrick Willis. Oh, really? He had any, it seems like he is a recruiter of sorts for a, a firm in Silicon Valley. I, I need to look into this more, but I do think it's interesting. Um, retired at age 29 and instantly jumped into this world, which I frankly just didn't know much about Patrick Willis, so to read that I thought was surprising. I'm curious to know what he's up to. If you have not seen the Kenny Powers, Patrick Willis commercials for, who, what was the company? It's a shoe company, uh, um, right? A lower tier shoe company. Uh, K-Swiss. K-Swiss. Yep. They were amazing. They were amazing. Uh Kill that motherfucker, Patrick Willis. <laughs> I miss Kenny Powers. Anyway, those are our hammers. If you've got someone you want us to talk to, email us, justnotsports at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Beam. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a fantastic interview with Alexi Lalas. I say fantastic not for our interviewing skills, but for... His uh, energy level, excitement. We talked to him about his music, a a career that really goes back all the way back 20 years into the mid-90s. He's been releasing albums um, since the days of grunge. He had a lot of opinions about uh, his influences, about uh, you know what motivates him as a songwriter, how his career and style has evolved. So if you're a soccer fan, if you're an Alexi fan, uh, definitely tune in. We had a lot of fun with it, and uh, we'll be right back. Joining the show right now is Alexi Lalas. Alexi is a member of the National Soccer Hall of Fame who starred for years in MLS and for the U.S. men's national team. These days when he's not doing marathon periscope sessions with his adoring fans, you can find him on Fox Sports providing outspoken and insightful soccer analysis. This week, Fox Sports kicked off its UEFA Champions League coverage, which will follow Ronaldo, Messi, and even Harry Kane on my Spurs 
all year on FS1. FS1 is also carrying MLS matches on Sundays. Check those out too. But today we are not talking about the beautiful game. We're talking beautiful music. Alexi has been recording rock albums since the 1990s, and his latest record, Shots, came out earlier this summer and is available on Spotify, Amazon, or iTunes. So we are going to go deep on Alexi's evolution as an artist, his albums, and just how much he knows about the other Alexi Lalas who is online making music and is very much a confusing thing for a Google search engine. So Alexi, thank you for joining. How are you doing today? I am. Uh, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. That was that was incredi- incredibly red intro. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Uh, I want to start. We're going to get into your music. I want to start with the other Alexi Lalas. Are you aware of this other gentleman or band or whatever it is that's uh, that's making music with the, with the same moniker as you? Uh, it is the bane of my musical existence right now. Uh, there is a it's it's it, it, touted as a band, but uh, but after further research, it seems to be one person over in Europe, uh, Scandinavian of origin, I think, uh, but I'm not quite sure, who has decided to use my name, uh, which in normal circumstances would be interesting, I guess, unique, and uh, would be no problem except for the fact that I actually do music too. So as you mentioned, it makes it very, very difficult. I spend many hours uh, on the phone, on emails, uh, and on online trying to explain to the different platforms out there that while I have no problem uh, with him or her or them putting out music, uh, it, it, we have to find a way to differentiate because it's also very <laughs> different type of music. But I always tell people, look, if you dig it, then I'm taking full credit for it. If you don't, then it's definitely this other person. <laughs> I love that because I'd be lying about. It. Now we're we're very familiar with with you and your music. We 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 work in sports in the show, so we get it. But I remember um, hunting around for older videos and stuff, and kind of stumbling onto one of the, one of their videos. And it's like it's literally like five minutes of just a guy watching himself watch himself play. And I was like, this is not <laughs> this is not the right Alexi Laws. But it definitely took me like thirty seconds. <laughs> So I'm sorry that you are you're being confused uh, for for this. Like like you said, gentlemen or band, I I couldn't quite tell either. Well, I, look, if you go out there and you find something, uh, and and you, and you listen long enough, I think those discerning fans, all three of of my discerning fans or fans in general, for that matter, um, all three of them, I think, will figure out very quickly which is uh, me and then which one is the the band. I guess we'll we'll call it. Oh, you're being modest about your fandom. I mean, look, you've been making music since the 90s. You've had, we we have on this show put together a Mount Rushmore of athlete musicians. You're definitely on it. Um, I just wonder, it, now that you're- Between clear, Shaq and Bernie Williams. <laughs> yeah, right. We, uh, <laughs> quite, a, quite a few good options there. As, but as we look back on your career, um, how do you think about um, the evolution of your music? And did you ever think you would be doing it as long as you have, um, and as successfully as you have, continuing to put out original work? Um, yes, I thought that it was, would always be a part of my life. Uh, I have always looked at it as something that I have equal passion for. And I, and I like to think that I am as good and, and maybe in some instances better than anything I do with regards to my work in, in soccer. Um, both either on or or in front of the camera. So, and I take it as as seriously. 
um, I don't take myself too seriously, but I take what I do seriously, and whether that's working on television and talking about soccer or doing music. And it's something that um, that I ha- I've had in my life well before I ever got involved in sports, and now I also have in my life well after I got done playing sports. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this is this is something that that is a love, it is a passion, and I. And, and it also, to a certain extent, has saved me, not, not to get you know, all melodramatic or anything, but it is something that I recognize has been a huge and important part of my life and has made me better at the other things that I do, but also better uh, as a person. And there's a, a cathartic uh, type of aspect to it, and, um, and obviously the creativity part of it. Uh, it, it's it's something that I I can't I can't fathom a life without music in it. Either writing or recording or, or performing or just having music be something that uh, that is this this thing that I do on a consistent basis. Alexia, I think back. I remember when the U.S. hosted the World Cup in '94, and you were you were to a large degree the face of that team. And so much of what was covered is like you had long hair a big red goatee and you played rock music. And how did you handle that at the time, trying to be taken seriously, both as a soccer player, as an artist and someone who is expressing themselves rather than a curiosity? I mean, it was mentioned in every piece about the team. And as you just said, you're trying to do this in a serious artistic way. Um, well, a couple of things. Number one, uh, I have always considered myself a performer and an entertainer, and whether that is in the music side or in the sports side, and I don't apologize for that at all. I, I love watching entertainers and performers, and whether they are and, and look, there's there are a lot of similarities. You you practice something, you rehearse something, uh, you mm-hmm. you go out on stage in front of people, you go out on a field in front of people. And then it goes off great sometimes, and it doesn't go off great sometimes. But you have that instant reaction uh, from people, and it's and it's addictive. It is it is something that you that you want. I grew up in the seventies and eighties, and, and especially in the eighties with the with the whole glam rock uh, aesthetic and and do it yourself type of sunset strip type of thing. So I I understood from a very early age the importance of costume, the, imp- the importance of how you market yourself, how you brand yourself, and how you look it is important. And it was by design. It was something, yes, I was comfortable with, but I, I knew how that part of the machine worked from watching it work in music. And But I also mm-hmm. recognize that there are risks involved in, in all of that. And especially when it comes to athletes that do music, you know, you, you have your, your, your people that are, that are out there. And a lot of times it's vanity projects and it's just the ability for athletes to be given opportunities that other wouldn't, others wouldn't be given because of the fact that they either have money or they have notoriety. And I knew that just to be taken uh, seriously or just to be good, I had to be really good. And there was always going to be uh, a diminished type of perception because of the fact that so many people would first discover me in the soccer world. But, but there was uh, a value to that, that if I could use and, and, and do it in the correct way, uh, I could take advantage of it. Well, it's interesting you say that just because it, 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 
it's it's so antithetical to I don't know the entire human experience to be like I want to try a couple different things. I mean, no, you can't do that. <laughs> right. And you know, even if the, if something is a vanity project or something like that, I mean, who's to say that a Sunday painter doesn't get something out of that? Now, obviously, what you did is a lot more than that, but it does speak to the judgment that falls on this. So. And and, and and the perception from outside and look you know we live in this world that that it's, nothing's fair nothing's fair in soccer and, and in life and certainly in music and in life I mean I love you know years ago Donny Osmond put out a single but didn't say it was Donny Osmond and got incredible um, response and then when people found out it was Donny Osmond there was the the ones that couldn't believe they liked it because Donny Osmond all that but it was an incredible social type of experiment to see how the aesthetic of somebody or the name or the perception of somebody can change how you view or you see or you hear something out there. And, you know, but I never complained about the fact that, that many people would automatically not listen simply because uh, I was, I was an athlete doing music because there were certain people that would listen to it because I was an athlete. But like I said, mm-hmm. uh, you, you had to be, really good just to be considered good and you're always going to be taken down and not looked at the same because of the fact of where you're coming from but i never let that deter me and that goes back to what you said look you got to live your life and you have to do the things that make you happy regardless of what everybody says or thinks or if or if anybody is even going to care and that's 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 really what it comes down to it really doesn't matter if anybody likes my music or or buys my music or cares about or cares about my music I'd be doing it anyway. Yep. Well, for starters, Lexi, we have bought your music, so go get a latte on us um, uh, later today with those iTunes checks. The, I was, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I'm just fascinated at how much misinformation there is about the early stages of your career floating around the internet. You go to certain articles yeah. about you, and people are, they're, you know, they're saying that you were in a band, Ginger. Totally false. Uh, you know, they're claiming that uh, Far From Close was something that was put out a couple of years ago when I believe that music's, you know, been in circulation since the mid-90s. I know that you've had work, that you, you were part of a band. I believe it was the, it was the Gypsies um, for a while before you got, um, you know, went too far down your solo career. But if I'm, <laughs> if I'm feeding the beast here with wrong information, please yell at me. But would you mind for our, our listeners who, who may know your more recent work but want to kind of discover where you came from, could you kind of chart the course a little bit, take us back to, Kind of when you when you first started publishing music and and what your journey was there. So I, I like a lot of musicians. Uh, I grew up I grew up in Michigan. I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Detroit, and I went through uh, you know that whole garage band type of uh, phase. And like I said, I was heavily into the whole eighties uh, hair metal, glam metal, what metal, whatever you want to call oh, it. Yeah, I was, it was actually funny. I was I was I was arguing with. Uh, Eddie Trunk the other day, not arguing, but having a discussion with Eddie Trunk on Twitter the other day, asking him to specifically define the difference between metal and hard rock. And it basically came down to, I can't really define it, but I know it when I, when I hear it. But anyway, you know. The Supreme Court definition of pornography. (laughs) Exactly. So anyway, so I, I did all of those garage bands. And so. You know, I was I was playing in garage bands. I was doing all the sports, obviously, but I was also doing chamber singers and barbershop and all this kind of stuff. So I was moving through all these different worlds in high school, which really was great because I wasn't just a jock or anything like that. And musicals and talent shows and playing out uh, on the weekends and doing all that. 
uh, I, I went to school in New Jersey at Rutgers, which is where I really started playing in bands, and we would play uh, in New Jersey, you know, at that, uh, whatever, the Stone Pony down in Asbury Park, and we'd go into the city and play Kenny's Castaways and Stevie Cheezy's and the Bitter End and all these different places uh, through the 80s. And I started to put out some stuff, um, and this is obviously back when it was a whole lot more difficult to record stuff than it is now, but I put out my first album right around the World Cup in 1994, which was uh, an album called Woodland, but which is very difficult to find out there, um, and which is a half, half band, which was, as you mentioned, a band that I was playing with uh, in New Jersey called the Gypsies, and half uh, uh, acoustic solo type of stuff. And then I went and played in uh, Italy, as you mentioned, uh, and I did Far From Close, which I recorded in Italy. So, so let's say that Woodland came out in 94, Far From Close came out in 1996, which yep. was a solo album that I, that I wrote and recorded in Italy. And then a couple of years later, I was back in the United States, and I was signed for a label called CMC, and I released an album called Ginger. Uh, that came out in 1998, and then I released some more solo albums, including, uh, let's see, So It Goes, which probably came around around the turn of the century, and then since then I've released a couple of albums, Infinity Spaces, and then the latest one, Shots. So that's kind of the discography, if you will, out there, and much of it is available, uh, some of it isn't available, but uh, I've been doing it for yeah, a long time, since, uh, since the 90s, and then there's all sorts of bootleg stuff out there from uh, from the 80s and 90s that uh, I did with with different people that sometimes I even forget. Um, first of all, there's a great for our listeners. There's a great YouTube uh, video of you in Italy playing some Bruce Springsteen. Do you do you remember this video, <laughs> Alexi? Have you have you seen this in a while? Yeah, so this is a, a, an artist called Luca Barbarossa that they put me in, in contact with, and they were the same label that put out my album. Uh, had gotten in touch with me to just do a, a single song um, on a tribute album to Bruce Springsteen. And uh, I did uh, um, uh, If I Should Fall Behind. And they liked that, and they put me together with him, and we did another cut for that album, uh, Tougher Than the Rest, uh, with him. And so we actually went around and promoted the album, and I, I, I did a couple of shows with him, and it was fun. It was, it was interesting to hear their take on Bruce, and then obviously to get me involved. And I'll be honest, I wasn't a huge Bruce fan, but it it enabled me to get into his catalog and to look for some different things, and it was really fun, not just, not just uh, recording the songs, but also uh, performing a lot. Yeah, I really love your rendition of "Tougher Than the Rest." I thought you guys you guys had great chemistry together. I'm not just blowing smoke; it's 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 very it's very good. Um, how now that you've been doing this for you mentioned doing this a while now? Um, clearly, you're still making new music. How do you, I guess, how do you mentally compartmentalize where you were as an artist and as a songwriter then versus now? Yeah, I mean, just like anything, you get better and you understand how, for, for lack of a better word, your, your process, I guess, not to get too highfalutin or anything, but, uh, you know, I understand how I need and want to write songs and what I, I can get to a place where I'm happy quicker than I could in the past. And that's just reps. It's just like anything else. And I've also, as you as you go along, you realize what you're good at, maybe what you're not good at, and you get into your lane, and it becomes comfortable. And that can be dangerous too, because you don't experiment or or try other things and discover other things about yourself. But over the years, like I said, I, you know, so I grew up with all of those different 
slam bands, but also I was listening to Duran Duran and Kaji Gugu, but also Tom Petty and John Mellencamp and, yep. and Pat Benatar and you know all the classic rock stuff and Triumph and, and all these different bands. But and then into the nineties, into your you know your Lemonheads and these types of alternative. I guess they would be alternative at that point. Soul Asylum uh, type of almost pop rock type of stuff, which really appealed to me. Where it wasn't the 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 normal glam type of uh, of of sound, but it was almost taking an acoustic song and that not almost, but it was taking an acoustic song and just making it electric and bringing a, a, an added energy to it. But ultimately, most of my songs can, can be broken down to an acoustic guitar and voice, which is how initially I write many of them, not all of them, but uh, for the most part. And, so, and I think that that having a comfort level and understanding of that my wheelhouse that's what i like sonically it's the way i like the songs to sound and uh and just like i I would suppose any artist out there you're constantly trying to have that perfect song and you never get there but it's this constant whittling down of different things and adding and taking away things until you're at a place where you're hopefully as close as maybe you're ever going to get but i don't think that we ever fully get there I love that you mentioned Tom Petty in there along with your process, because I remember I read an interview with him years ago where he basically said every day he basically goes to his studio and just starts strumming around and playing the guitar until he finds like a riff or a sequence he likes and it grabs his attention. He starts writing with it. And I just love the idea of this guy that has been writing some of the best popular music for about 40 years after 40 years sitting alone in a studio with a guitar, just hacking away at it day after day after day and trying to get better. And I, I think it speaks to the fact that that is a universal, I mean, I guess that's the universal struggle and or quest of music. No, just searching for the perfect song, note, sequence, harmony, correct? It is. And, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's a, a musician or an artist in general. I love listening to how many of them, especially writers, writers, writers will talk about how, regardless if, if they use what they write, they have to write. And there, and there is a real type of, um, uh, not stubbornness, but regimen that they go through and they have to go through that. And they recognize that it makes them better just the process of writing, even if the content isn't something that they necessarily want. And I think that that does apply to musicians, too, to be able to, on a daily basis, which is what I do, have some sort of moment when you are writing. And it may be the greatest thing in the world, and it may be crap. It doesn't matter. The actual <laughs> training of it is, is, important to, is important to go through. And I think some of the best artists, whether they're musicians or painters or, or writers for that matter, have a kind of daily routine that they recognize is of value, even if the content that they come up with in that moment isn't something that is necessarily something that they use. Chuck Close, the painter, once said, this is my favorite quote about creativity, but basically said, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just get to work. And (laughs) to me, it speaks to that, like, even if it's crap, you've just got to go through it and get better and get better and get better. And to your point about painters, musicians, writers, I've been really transfixed recently with the idea of a body of work. And so beyond breaking, like I'd rather break down what you've done over the years. How do you as a musician know 
okay, this collection of songs is how I feel right now. This is when I want to release an album. Like, this is how I'm feeling. This is my current body of work. How do you know when that's done? Like, how do you work on the album sequencing? Like, what is the process of putting together an album like for you? So for me, you know, I have a studio in the house and I'm like, like we talked about every day, I'm doing something. A lot of it is just going to, I know, just, just be in digital form forever and never necessarily be, be used. And I think most artists do that. I mean, we look at prints and we... Well, that's got to be freeing in some ways at this point, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, prints is, is obviously the most, has the most notoriety for just this incredible archive that he did, but I don't think it's any different than most musicians out there constantly doing stuff that a lot of stuff you just don't use. He just cataloged it and, and it has it in there. So for me, when I get to a point where, and I still think in terms of albums, and I know that that's not the way the world works anymore, so sequencing, I still will sequence an album as if somebody is going to listen to it from start to finish, but I recognize that, that, that people don't do that anymore. So, uh, so there is a, a, a strategy when it comes to an actual album. I still like to have a, a good ten songs, um, and I think that that's a good amount of songs for an album, whether mm-hmm. it was twenty years ago or today. Uh, and, and so I sequence it that way. But I, I look at it. I look at my my music and my songs as a, a diary. You know, I, I didn't keep a diary the way some people have, and so I look at it as a, a diary, and I can look at each and every song. Uh, and know where I was, when I wrote it, what I was doing, how how it's reflective, either directly or indirectly, in each song. And you mentioned leaving a body of work. You know, as I said before, it's not about how many people listen or buy your music. For me, it's leaving a body of work that maybe even one person can 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 listen to or be interested in when I'm long gone from this earth. And I, I and maybe it's just a constant human need to be remembered and to leave something on this earth tangible that is there for people to see and maybe in some way define you when you're gone. But I, I, I do look at it as a diary of my life. Whether people can see it directly or indirectly, it doesn't really matter, but I can see it when I look at each and every song and then within each and every album and period of my life. Mm. Alexi, I was going to ask you, how autobiographical do you allow yourself to get? I mean, I can look at your music and I can make parallels. Like we can read into it and say, oh, he's he's uh, you know, he's talking about X and Y that's going on in his life. But you never know. You never know the artist's intent. Are you someone that 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 will put yourself out there, expose yourself emotionally in in the music um, from your own experiences or, or being a public figure in another way and having a, a publicly facing personal brand? Do you ever keep your guard up? Um, you know, to prevent uh, you know, revealing too much. Well, well, first things first. I believe that when an artist, regardless of what the medium is, releases art to the public, that you lose the right to define what that song right. is about for everybody else. Yep. Uh, so your interpretation of a song is as legitimate and valid as as me as the writer. So I can't tell you that this song is about this. For me, it might be about this. If you see it in a different way, that is as valid as, as my view, even though I wrote the song. Uh, so, when, but when you talk about what I use in my in my own writing, look, sometimes it's autobiographical. I, I, I tend not to be too specific, but I can, like you said, it is a diary. There's a lot of uh, 
uh, I think there's there's some go-to type of things that I have. There's a lot of travel type of uh, material out there, and I guess longing and distance. Much of my life has been spent on the road. Much of my life has been spent traveling around. Much of my life has been spent away from where I grew up. Uh, all of those different things. I think those are themes that that you can find in there. It's rare that you can look at. I think at a lyric and and specifically assign it to something that you may have that, that I may have gone through. I mean, I'm not saying <laughs> scores of soccer games or or anything like that, but there's a lot of stuff certainly that that indirectly applies to things that I've done. But I also recognize that I want people to be able to relate, and so if I'm the only one that relates to it, while that might satisfy me, and and there is an importance in satisfying yourself, I, I kind of want others to be able to relate. And so when you get too much in the weeds or too specific, sometimes I think it, it can be lost on others and it can hurt the song to a certain extent. We actually had Drew Magary on the show. He's a writer um, for GQ and Deadspin. He just wrote a, a novel and he said the same thing. He said that once I put work out there, um, it's no longer mine and I can't be mad when someone gives me their interpretation. Now, he did say, I won't have the debate about my art uh, I won't sit down and just and just over a beer just debate the true intent. And I was curious from your perspective, uh, when people like you know when jackasses like me throw interpretations to you, uh, do you do you ever uh, want to chime back in with with your original intent, or do you like there being that vagueness where people can uh, sort of paint their own perception onto the blank canvas? Yeah, I mean, if people ask me about what a song derives from, I I can tell them, but. I feel like I'm, I'm taking away something from their experience, and and as I said before, I don't. I want them to to, to have their own, and therefore a, a sense of ownership in terms of their own interpretation of what it's about. And look, here's the dirty little secret. <laughs> and gee, I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know. But sometimes the answer is, you know what? It just rhymes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right, right. And, and 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 I'm not being flip or anything. I mean. The reality is, and I, I, I firmly believe this, whether you're a multi-million-selling artist, uh, an incredible, you know, and, and a legend or something like that, there are moments where you know what, it just, it, it just rhymed and it and it fits into place and it felt good when I was singing it and it doesn't have any crazy significance or meaning. But I've also found that many of these artists have a have a knack of even when it just rhymes, it, it, it ends up being poetry, and that's probably what makes them great. I, I think it was Frank Black who said most of the Pixies lyrics just sounded cool to him. Now, I don't know if I want to take him at face value with that. One of the great theatrical rock musicians of the last 20 or so years. But I always liked that idea, or 30, I guess, at this point. But I always liked that just sort of like, don't read too much into slicing up eyeballs. It just seemed like a cool image. So, And you risk. You risk crushing people too, because if somebody, for example, does, and look, we all have our songs that 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 move us, and we have assigned meaning and significance to, and I wouldn't want to necessarily be the person that that got to, you know gave somebody a look behind the curtain, and in doing so, completely crushed their interpretation uh, of it. And the fact that somebody can take something that maybe, even though I might be the creator of it, it's mundane. Uh, or just uh, it was just thrown out there. The fact that somebody else can take that same thing 
and find significance and maybe some uh, safety or or uh, or comfort in it. That's that's powerful, man. I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to be somebody to take that away from anybody. Alexi, um, I read an interview with Michael Stipe, and I was shocked to see him come out and say that uh, New Adventures in Hi-Fi was his favorite album. Uh, two reasons. One, as an REM fan, I was like, really, that album <laughs> this is your favorite album? Two, and more, more uh, relevant here, I was really surprised to hear the artist say, um, you know, in definitive terms, this is, this is what I like best about my canon. So I'm just wondering, do, do you have a favorite album or, or even like a favorite song? Or is that just impossible to quantify having created your entire body of work? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, favorite kid and all that, all those different right. cliches that people <laughs> come up with. But, but, you know, I do think that, you know, look, as part of creating music is also the production of the music and, and what it sounds like. And so, for example, when I go back and I listen to albums that I did a long time ago, I say, ah, you know, for example, um, I listened to some of the vocals on uh, on Ginger or Far From Close, and there was a real uh, kind of tinny, uh, weak vocal type of uh, performance and production. Uh, and so that, that irritates me uh, at times. doesn't make hmm. it mean that it's not a good song, but... Like you're always going to go back and you're going to say, "I wish, wish I should have done. Wish I should have. Uh, wish I could have done that." And look, and, and the last one that you do is oftentimes your your current baby. <laughs> so, and, and I don't. And I think that 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 applies here. Plus, I think you, if you're getting better at doing it, I mean, if you've peaked at, at your first album, that must be that. I think that would be incredibly demoralizing and, and to a certain extent, depressing. Um, and which is why, while that would be wonderful to have a, a hit right out of the box, if you, I think it, I think it's hard too to try to live up to that, and not just in terms of the numbers of, of sales, but also coming to terms with the fact that you might have already done your best work and that's it. And um, I, I don't feel that way. I think I can do better, both in terms of the production and in terms of the writing and all of that kind of stuff, even even now. And so this is, for me, it's just the process of getting better and better and better. Alexi, one of the things I think that's interesting about maintaining this career, your career and the longevity of it, uh, you know, like you've gained legitimacy as an artist, not just like an athlete who makes rock music, but you've also, by going for that long, been able to see seismic changes in the music industry. And so as a guy who's stuck with rock and roll through the whole time, I mean, it's the guy in Europe who's doing Alexi Lawless's experimental electro music, I believe. Um, what do you think the current cultural role of rock music is as a, as a cultural force? Where do you think that is and how has it changed since you first started? Well, uh, from a practical perspective, the way that people get their music has, has obviously changed. Um, the, you know, look, it's all like the usual complaints. The music is much more disposable than it ever was. And it was always to a certain extent uh, disposable. But, you know, those of us, we end up sounding like, like old grump, grumpy old men, you know, remember, remembering the great feel of vinyl or sitting in line 
waiting to get those actual tickets to a show or sitting in line outside a record store waiting for the release of something like that. And that, that, that time will never come back again. And that, that has changed, but that's okay. Because, I mean, look, I remember in the early, what are we calling the early aughts or the 2000s or whatever? Yeah, we, we were definitely pro aughts, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, the early, the early aughts, I mean, I remember, you know, the whole master thing. I remember waking up in the morning and going down and looking at my computer where I had all of my catalog available to people and seeing people that never in a million years would have been able to find or listen to my music, having them have downloaded over overnight. And that made me so happy. And I know that there's, there's, uh, there's economic realities, especially when you're relying on selling many, many albums. But as far as the distribution and the ability for people to find and listen to music, especially music that in, in that world that we were just talking about, you wouldn't be able to, that's it. That's, we live in a wonderful world. Now, the production mm-hmm. of music, as you guys, as you guys mentioned, has become so much easier. You know, back when I'm working on a cash can four track or whatever, and, uh, you know, just trying to bounce a million tracks to, uh, and, and losing, you know, losing quality each and every time. And now there's unlimited tracks out there because of the digital world we, we, we live in. Everybody can do music. And, and I, know, I know artists lament that fact to a certain extent. But you know what? I think quality and creative people will win out regardless of what the form of the way that they are recording and producing their, uh, uh, their music. We haven't talked about live performance yet. I just want to know, number one, are there any hilarious anecdotes from your time on the road? Um, any, any, any era uh, that, that, that you think people should know about? Uh, so, for example, uh, something from the past. I remember when we toured with Foodie back uh, on the Ginger album, they took us out on a European leg of their tour, which was a blast. We had a great time. But, you know, we're, we were, to say the least, a little bit different in terms of, and you know, we were much more power pop rock and, and are power pop rock when we perform. And, but they were great. They were wonderful. And the, and the crowd was good. And I think the Hootie guys appreciated what we were doing and almost to them, they, I remember, I'll never forget being out on stage with uh, doing sound check and the guys from Hootie coming out, and uh, we we uh, kicked into a uh, a version of uh, the Trooper from uh, from uh, Iron Maiden on stage <laughs> during sound check, and uh, because it, even though they were associated with a specific type of music uh, and a very popular type, uh, certainly at that point, there was this recognition that that this a much more rocking type of music was going on to open their show. And I think they appreciate it. And we had a blast uh, on and off stage. Alexi, you talked briefly about what you grew up listening to. What do you listen to now that gets you excited? I mean, you're, you're commuting to the Fox sports lot or the Fox lot in LA. What are you listening to in your car as you're sitting on the four Oh five these days? Well, uh, so anyway, so yeah, it's, it's been, uh, I've come a long way since, uh, Mrs. Van Heusen's piano lessons back in the seventies uh, <laughs> where my mom, you know, I was, I was one of those kids, like millions and millions of others that were sent kicking and screaming down to the piano lessons, the two blocks down to Mrs. Van Heusen's piano lesson. And, uh, she would want me to do scales and I would be, you know, playing some Van Halen song or whatever it ended up being. <laughs> uh, so, I've, so, so. I have my my wheelhouse, and and so there's certainly groups that, like I said, I I grew up listening to and have followed them and continue. For example, I don't know. Um, I mentioned Soul Asylum, which I, I love and, and 
and grew up listening to. And they still continue to produce good pop rock. Even I saw them live the other day, a couple hundred people in there. And they're, you know, the first single off of their latest album, I think, is really good. Matt Nathanson, I think, is a really interesting uh, artist. And uh, I enjoy listening to him. Butch Walker, I think, is a, a national treasure, both in terms of his performance uh, and his production and his writing. And uh, so I love listening to those type of guys. And then it's just, mm-hmm. it could be uh, just uh, uh, things that I get from, from people out there. Um, What's the, what's the name of that band from uh, uh, from Canada I was listening to the other day? Uh, uh, Monster Truck or something like that? Uh, there you go. Yeah, hmm. Monster Truck. You know, that, that, that was an interesting band, that type of stuff. So, um, you know, that, that's the type of stuff I listen to. And then, and then I listen to a lot of 80s and a lot of yacht rock and stuff like that. Oh, nice. Ambrosia, Ambrosia and Christopher Cross and you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I love uh, bread and you know all those different types of. Oh yeah, who likes the Doobie Brothers? Because we got one of them. There we go. <laughs> of course, of course, of course, man. Yeah, Paul and Oates. You know, I, I love all of that. Queen. Um, you know, still continue to listen to that. But then you know a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, let's see, New Order or uh, Cure, Team of Jezebel. These types of. Of bands that that I grew up listening to, and then and then just my my wheelhouse is Rat and Skid Row, and then those types of bands. Warrant, I think Janie Lane, the lead singer of Warrant, who who died a few years ago, was just a, a a wonderful songwriter. And obviously, once again, that perception of something changes the way that a lot of people view it. You know, he's the lead singer of Warrant and, and all that kind of stuff. But I just thought he was a great songwriter and, and a great singer. You know, we had Judy Batista, NFL reporter, on. She talked about her love of Van Halen. Uh, we had a long debate. Oh. We had a long debate over whether Van Halen counts as a hair band. I said no. Um, others said yes. Where do you come down on this discussion? Uh, I think they transcended the hair band uh, genre. Right. Uh, although they did certainly come out of that sunset sunset strip, and they introduced a lot of people, but. You know, for example, I think someone like Kiss also transcended that. And I, you know, I love Kiss and love love Van Halen. And uh, and if you ask me, the difference it's I think that Sammy Hagar is a better singer, and I like Sammy Hagar solo. I actually love Sammy Sammy Hagar solo, but Van Halen will always be the the, the voice of David Lee Roth for me. And those those albums and the way that they not only transformed from a, a guitar standpoint, the way that we think about guitaring, but they did it where it wasn't a separate part of the song. And I know eruption and all that kind of stuff, but it was always amazing to me to see that we were marveling at the guitar playing and, and the, the way he was transforming the actual playing of the, of the guitar, but it was always within a song that was equally as good as the amazing guitar playing. And, and, and just a real lesson to all of us that uh, if it doesn't fit the song, it doesn't matter how good it might sound on its own. You you've got just not sports our show now for any music you want to write man you any 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 like b sides <laughs> or old demos you want to get out there you send them to us we will automatically play them on our show no questions asked. <laughs> well, listen, in full, I, I want to say something. I have done thousands and thousands of interviews over the course of my lifetime and, and my career. Uh, this has been, honest to God, one of the most uh, enjoyable. And I recognize that there's a real uh, 
you know, there's a, that you're appealing to my ego and the, the narcissist in all of us because it is all about me and all about something that I take this seriously, but as I do my soccer, but I'm rarely allowed to kind of talk about. And so I thank you for uh, giving me that, giving me that opportunity. And, uh, and, and I love the fact that you're doing it. I don't know if there's anybody else out there that will care or listen to it, but the <laughs> fact that you have indulged me here for the last however many minutes we've been talking just warms the cockles of my redheaded heart. And I, I can't thank you enough. <laughs> Love, I love the, uh, I love the warming of the cockles. Um, and look, that, that's what we do. We, we just, you know, we work in sports. We just like talking to people in sports about something that, you know, that's not work and that they can really get into. Yours is, hey man, you got twenty years of experience on it. I love it. We can't thank you enough for coming on. You've been so great. This was a, a great conversation. We would encourage everyone find your music. Um, you've got some of the albums up on Spotify. They're all on iTunes, I believe. Um, is there anywhere else you usually send people to check out your stuff? Yeah, same thing. All the different, all the usual platforms: iTunes, Spotify. Uh, uh, you can find them on all uh, Amazon, all that kind of stuff. So uh, I appreciate people that do uh, check them out. And uh, and as I said, I really appreciate you having me on this show. It's, it's really interesting, and uh, and and it feeds my uh, incredible ego and, uh, and narcissism. So thank you so much. <laughs> no problem. And follow. They should follow you on Twitter at Alexi Lalas and watch you on FS1 doing uh, um, Champions League and MLS all season long. So Alexi, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. There are athletes, and then there are totally badass athletes. Regus Woods belongs in the latter category. He is a double amputee who is heading to Rio to compete for the United States in the 2016 Paralympic Games. And as if that isn't taxing and cool enough, he has also logged time as a motorcycle stuntman. Yes, a motorcycle stuntman. Today, Regus is joining Just Not Sports to break down his stunt riding and his training as he heads to the games. So, Regus, thank you for joining the show. I want to get into the stunt bite work a lot because I'm super fascinated by it. But first, can you just tell our listeners a little bit more about your personal story? It is, uh, it's truly amazing. Well, uh, I was born with a congenital anomaly that prevented the proper development of my tib and fib. The doctors gave my cho- my mom the choice to either amputate or put um, rods in my legs. Mm-hmm. The best the best decision was the amputation um, because it sh- they would have put the gr- the rods in. I would have been in and out of surgeries all throughout my childhood. So, and I would have had fused knees. So, uh, it was a hard decision, but the best decision for my mom to do the amputation at age two. It's so inspiring to see how many athletes, um, you know, overcome, uh, you know, the, 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 their physical situations. And I'm just curious, like, when did you, when did you decide that, um, you know, athletics was going to be something that you wanted to pursue? Because it's such an enormous hurdle, clearly, um, given, uh, you know, what happened. But like, when did you first say, like, this is something I can do and, and excel at? Um, I really committed when I was told. Um, that it was impossible for a bilateral above knee amputee to compete at the elite level. That we race in wheelchairs. A bilateral above knee amputee can't run. You're supposed to race in a wheelchair. And that was the the moment there that pushed me over the edge and it motivated me to prove everyone that you can do anything if you put your mind to it. And to never say never. I also have my own foundation, um, co-founder of uh, Never Say Never Foundation. Yep. 
and we buy running prosthesis for kids uh, that can't afford it um, and, and other athletes. And what sets us apart from other foundations is 100% of what we bring in goes to the cause. We don't do the legal 10% to the cause and the other 90 the so-called overhead. We do 100% goes to the cause with Never Say Never Foundation. Yeah, I mean that's a great. I was going to ask you about the foundation because it's a great, it's a great cause. And and how important is it for kids um, to get their hands on the equipment that they need at an early age to gain that confidence and really show them um, that 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 sports, athletics, um, are things they can pursue. It's very very important because the worst feeling for a child or a human being, period, is to be rejected by their peers and having a disability um, in in school or even just around the neighborhood, you may not get picked to be on the uh, the football team or, or play kickball. You may not get picked for that sport because they think you're not fast. So with these running blades, uh, it will equip these kids to be able to, to live a normal social lifestyle. And, and, and instead of little Joey or Billy being picked last, they're the first ones to get picked because, hey, they're true athletes. They can, the blade um, helps them uh, perform. Absolutely. And, um, what does it mean to you to be in a position to give back to to other members of the community and especially to younger younger people who are looking for that confidence? I know you had talked quite openly. I've read some interviews where you talked about middle school being a hard time. You know, like we're getting you know being different um, can lead to being picked on, being bullied, um, being mocked. Um, you know, how do you feel emotionally to be a trendsetter and and, and really trying to give back? Um, it, it's just a wonderful feeling. Um, the the hardest part for me though, uh, with with going around speaking to kids, like I went to a hospital and talked to a, a kid in the children's hospital, and I couldn't warn him about the things that he was going to go through in life. I just had to and to reassure him that everything was going to be all right. Um, I I talked to his parents and told his parents this is what he's going to experience, but I didn't want to discourage him by putting planting those negative seeds into his mind. I just had to let the parents know to be a strong support system for for their child and, and, and give them a hug when they come home. Let them know that it's going to be all right. Let them know that, that they can do anything that they put their mind to. And that's what my mom did with me. She always said, son, you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you. And she's always uh, never treated me different than my, my, my other siblings. And I had chores just like everybody else. And that's what it's about, being independent, teaching a kid with, with a disability to be a dependent. Because what happens is um, parents, they're trying, they may think they're doing their kid good by sheltering them if they have a disability, but uh, it's actually not helping them. Um, right. You got you got to treat that kid like a normal, like a, a normal everyday kid. They may just have to do things a little different, but you can't shelter that kid. You got to, you got to let them go out there and make those mistakes. You got to let them fall and, and help them get back up and let them know that it's going to be okay. You know, so I've been, I've been watching your, your Facebook, uh, you know, you post, you've been doing a lot of like live chats and stuff from, um, you know, from the gym, clearly working out as hard as you can getting ready for the Olympics. Uh, I'm just curious what your, what your training schedule looks like for an athlete at your level. Getting on the elite level, man, is, is really, really difficult, uh, especially with Paralympic sports. Right. Uh, this table sports really not respected in the U.S. like it is over in the U.K. A lot of times they confuse, uh, for the lack of knowledge, confuse Special Olympics with Paralympics. Right. Two, two totally different different things. You got guys 
and the Paralympic is running 10, 6, and 100 meters, uh, jumping 20 feet. You got Marcus Rim jumping 7, 8 meters um, in, in the Paralympic sport. So that makes it difficult for us to get sponsorship or endorsements here in the U.S. so that we can train full-time. So a lot of us have to uh, get off of work and go straight to training, which makes it very, very difficult and strenuous on your body. So it's a stressful uh, it's a stressful thing, man. But at the end of the day, we have a, we have a goal, uh, and we have to keep going, and we have to overcome adversity with a positive attitude. And hopefully one of these days, uh, Paralympic sport will get the respect that, that it's due. Because it's such an inspiration, man. It's, it's, it's a big inspiration to see. It's the stories behind it. You, a lot of these are, are, are war vets. Uh, that uh, and people with different accidents and birth defects that have made the best out of the situation, and now they're at the top of their game. So that's an inspiration to anyone. Uh, something simple is is as a kid having trouble in school with their with their grades. Seeing this could be, hey man, this guy has no legs. He's out here running, jumping twenty feet. I can buckle down and study and and and, and be a better student. I mean, it just you can you can you can relate to it. You know, you've, you've been a member of Team USA, you've competed internationally, but what does it mean when you had that moment where you qualify for the Paralympic Games and you and you found out, you know, you're, you're headed to Rio? I, I was overwhelmed with emotion because of all the sacrifices that, that, that have been made. I, I lost my job. They, they got rid of me. They didn't want to support me as a uh, Paralympic athlete or on my road to Rio. They took all my vacation time. They took my sick time so that I couldn't go train. Really? Uh, that's and, that. That's legit. So you he, you lost your job, like f- pursuing this? Yeah, yeah. They yeah they fired me. Oh um, man. And it was a bunch of other issues that went on there, and I I, I care not to discuss that because you know how right. that goes. <laughs> but um, it, it I am I'm a paralympic athlete. I it was rough, and it I just I was just overwhelmed with emotion when my name got called in that room that morning, uh, NBC and NASCAR was there to, to, to uh, capture the moment and it will be on television here pretty soon. But I just was overwhelmed with tears, man. And, and it was like, man, it was worth it. Absolutely. I mean, like you said, did you ever a moment, did you ever have any moments where you said it's going to be too hard? It's too much to balance. I, I, I need to quit. Or was there, was there just a steely resolve to never give up? It was one one moment where I said, you know what, man, I'm I'm throwing in the towel. But then it was I was I was at work actually, and I think this was around the time when they they took all my vacation time and sick time, and and basically was doing everything they can to to, to sabotage uh, me succeeding in Paralympic sport or making the Olympics, reaching my dream. And a patient came in and it was like, they looked up to me. And, it was, and at that moment, I realized that it, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about how I'm feeling. And it wasn't about all the mess that I'm going through. It was about me not quitting so that these other amputees and people that look up to me can, can, can live, can live a normal social lifestyle, can um, have self-confidence, can know that there's life after amputation. So it was a lot on my shoulders. but. Um, to whom much is given, much is required, and um, I may just be that guy. <laughs> well, beyond the training, one of the things I definitely wanted to ask you about was, you know, your bio talks a lot about being a, a professional stunt uh, bike rider. So, tell me a little bit more about what this is for our listeners' sake, and um, 
and, and how you got into it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hey, that was my thing there, man. Uh, a buddy of mine actually got me involved in it. He's one of the top, top 10 riders in the world on the stunt circuit. And uh, he owned a motorcycle shop called Smith's Toys, and he got me involved in and uh, stunt riding. And, and i never forget the day he took me up, put me on the back of his bike. He was like, okay, man, hold on. And we went 12 o'clock straight up in the air. And, wow. and I was like, I was like, yeah, let's do it again. And he got took me off the bike. He's like, man, you're crazy. You're the first guy or person that I put on the bike and, and got excited after you almost losing your life on this bike. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, man, I just trained and trained and, and got on the quad. And he taught me different things. And, of course, we had to adapt because of my, my situation. But um, I was able to do uh, most of all the stunts. And I actually created my own uh, trick called the Superman. That's where I'm in push-up position. Okay. On the handlebars, full throttle, man. I'm talking about full throttle. How fast are you going uh, with full throttle, throttle like that? Uh, on that on that quad, probably about seventy. Wow. Right, yeah, kids, don't try that at home, please. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're going seventy miles an hour on a motorcycle, and then you 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 can I'm I'm picturing like a gymnast, like you kind of have your hands up and you're you're in a push up position over yes, the bike. On, oh, on the handlebars, yes. All my weight is on the handlebars. I'm fighting the wind. I'm fighting the, everything, and I'm wide open, man. It was a, it was an experience. Um, I was on uh, Super Street Bikes uh, with Jason Britton when yep. he had his show called Super Street Bikes. I was on that show. I was in uh, Super Street Bike Magazine and Two Wheel Tuna Magazine in every on every newsstand across the country. So it was pretty. It was pretty neat. Now, how long did you do that? And did you ever think? Well, maybe this isn't the best thing to do with my body if I also want to be an athlete. <laughs> <laughs> well, my coach Tony McCall basically told me, uh, "Look, buddy, uh, give me those keys." <laughs> so he uh, he, he kind of made me put that down. He's like, "You work too much on this track, and you got a a beautiful career ahead ahead of yourself, and you can pick that up later on." Which I probably won't because the only reason I was doing that is to try to get my name out there to try to get sponsorship to try to get uh, spread the awareness um doing above and beyond doing some crazy spectacular things just doing the things that people said that couldn't be done and that's what that was about is just getting my name out there so it was it was pretty cool it was good while it lasted that chapter is kind of closed my my four-wheeler actually is sitting in my backyard with weeds growing up in the tires and everything <laughs> well what what what's a harder you know what's the harder training regimen you know the you know doing the bike stunts or uh or getting ready for uh you know for the games um for safety wise the bike because in practice we go hard and we wreck and it hurts bad um uh, get road rash and all that type of stuff then you got a 400 pound machine that may roll run over you and all that type of stuff but track and field um yeah, it's, it's pretty. It can be in the off season. I would say in the off season, it gets, it gets pretty rough. <laughs> so you don't think you'll ever go back to the bike racing? And then where did, where did you do it? Like, where would you go to? Were there just different shows, or would you just do random events where you'd kind of show up uh, for for different crowds? Um, it was this thing called Stunt Wars that they used to have. I would go to the different stunt shows, and then um, with the uh, the shop that I was with, Smix Toys. They will have uh, local businesses and different places that will request them to come do stunt shows, and of course, I would be a part of that. So we would do shows everywhere. Man, that's incredible. I mean, I 
it's got to be it's got to be so insane to be up on a, a a motorcycle going that fast trying to do this type of a trick like what what what's the adrenaline rush of that it is a rush beyond the rush <laughs> because with 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 the uh that stunt like i said called the superman i detach the the uh the prosthetic from the knee because i use two it's, it's two formula it's two four millimeter allen screws and i just un unloose those and take the bottom part of the of the leg off so it gives the illusion like i don't have the legs on but it's the it's the top part with the socket and then it's the bottom part with the microprocessor knee so i take those off and i give one of them to somebody in the crowd and i go off and start doing my stunts and that'll really really get them going so uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild man well you know what we'll be rooting for you is what's i guess what's the final word on this in terms of um just how excited are you to represent the country um at the games I am. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm almost speechless. This is a is a great honor to represent the country, to represent my community, the family, all my fans. Um, it's definitely an honor, and I and I and I, I don't take it lightly. And I'm going to do my best. I'm. I'm going to leave it all on the track. If you win a medal, I want to see you during the national anthem pull out that Superman trick. Oh, I'll do it. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> That'd be an Olympic highlight for sure. Well, anyway, well, thank you so much for joining our show. We really appreciate it. We know it's a very busy time, um, but it's a great story. Love the, the side work you do with the, with the stunt bikes. Hope, that, hope to see you uh, do some of that. Do you, are there any videos online where people can check out some of that work? Oh, yeah, definitely. If you just uh, Google Regis Woods, R-E-G-A-S-W-O-D-S, um, stuff on YouTube and stuff everywhere. And I also have a, a GoFundMe page, too, if anybody, anybody would like to uh, support me or help support me on my way to the game. That's great. Well, well, we'll make sure to drive our listeners to both those when we post the show um, in a couple weeks. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And we are back. Uh, when athletes make music, movies, pick up hobbies, a lot of media and coaches and trolls, just call it a distraction. But Come on, man. Life is nothing but work and the things that distract us from work. So we like to point out the things that are distracting us. Gareth, I'm going to start with you. What's your distraction? Uh, Yeah, this is going to sound pretty broad, but I'm going to go for it. Uh, Just before we started taping, uh, I made reference to a painting by Willem de Kooning, uh, one of the great masters of 20th century art, American abstract, abstract expressionist, and Joe Reed, uh, and maybe Adam laughed, but I know Joe Reed said, I have no idea who that is. So, uh, Brad wisely said, uh, I smell a distraction coming. He was a hundred percent right. Um, my distraction this week is go to an art museum. Uh, you guys live in Chicago, go to the art Institute, the 20th century wing, uh, is world-class. It's fantastic. I went there this spring, the week of more than mean, uh, I'll go to the MoMA where I'm a member or the Whitney where I'm also a member. Uh, but, uh, I encourage everyone to get to know some more contemporary art. Uh, de Kooning's amazing. Jasper John's work is wonderful. Cy Twombly is a favorite. Um, there, Oh, Richard Prince is spectacular. Those are all dudes. Um, 
But yeah, just, boy, I don't know. Get to know some contemporary art, I guess, would be my distraction, period. Jasper so, John's, art museum. Jasper John's <clears throat> Great Simpsons cameo. <laughs> Great Simpsons cameo. Uh, you know what? Actually, let me throw one other name in there, because this was a guy whose work I saw a lot, and I just didn't get it. Uh, Felix Gonzalez Torres. Uh, and there's a piece of his at the Art Institute that I love. And I was seeing his work for years, and I just did not understand what the fuss was about. It was just like these Christmas lights hanging down or piles of candy. You would you were encouraged to take one. And then the more I read about his life, uh, he was a man in New York who had AIDS and lived through the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. And most of his work was about his uh, partner, Ross, dying of AIDS and then him subsequently dying of AIDS. And I, now I view it as just some of the most profound and moving artwork made ever at any time. Um, so Felix Gonzalez Torres would be the headline for me on getting to know contemporary art. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, Adam, you're looking at me like, I don't want to follow that. Yeah. Cause <laughs> mine, uh, is the opposite of Gareth's. It's perhaps the most lowbrow thing I've participated in in a long time since well, I went. Well, before you do this, Adam, let me just say I, uh-huh. what I like about this show. I feel we are all brow, you know. So, like high Anthony and low. Davis, we are the Anthony Davis <laughs> of culture. I love yeah. it. Uh, so mine is on the flip side of things. This is the most. Lowbrow thing I participated in until I went, but uh, uh, since I've went to an antique tractor pole in Wisconsin uh, back in 2007. Uh, that's a story for another day. Please. What I participated <laughs> in lately uh, is watching Bachelor in Paradise. Yeah, VIP. <laughs> My girlfriend, while I was out in LA, got me to watch one episode. Half an hour into it, I was like, this is the dumbest thing ever. And an hour and a half into it, I was like, how long are the commercial breaks? <laughs> when are we going to get back and see what yep. happens? I have to get home and set up my DVR, which I've done, uh, and binge watch The Bachelor in Paradise on the weekend. It's much better than The Bachelor. It's like the real world, but Bachelor style. Can you explain the the I'll, format of the show oh, yeah uh, I, I know it's like because let me let me let me jump in here uh, real quick resident <laughs> bachelor in paradise expert. it's like musical chairs basically uh, not quite bachelor in paradise kind of spins it but basically you have to go to paradise and hook up with someone and then stay hooked up because uh, there's always an extra guy or an extra girl and if you're left roommateless then you're gone the the the, the problem with bachelor in paradise is that they have opted for trying to really focus the bachelor brand on true love i think they've been burned in recent years by people just not really being in it other than just to get famous so they've pushed their couples that actually worked very hard Mm -hmm. and they tried to transform what was bachelor pad into bachelor in paradise and and really make it about people meeting and falling in love they get drama along the way Compare that to a very similar predecessor, Paradise Hotel and Paradise Hotel 2, one of the greatest <laughs> seasons of television ever. Paradise Hotel 2, 
was so complicated. It sounds really easy, but it was so complicated and no one knew how it worked. And so like literally five episodes in, you'd have like Raheem and James in a fight and Raheem would be like, I'm voting you your ass out this week. And you'd be like, no, Raheem, actually, <laughs> you have no voting power. <laughs> in fact, you, you and James should definitely team up. <laughs> like, the, it, was, it was outstanding. And then the ultimate greatest moment of, of, of Paradise Hotel 2, this was 2008. I'm sitting in my, in my room or in, in, my, in my living room with my roommate. Raheem had been voted out. We were so pissed off. James all alone. And then they're like, next week. On Paradise Hotel 2, the the return of Raheem. We jumped up. The only other time that year we made that much noise was when the Cubs clinched the pennant. Like, we jumped up and screamed so loud. And then at the end, they were like, and you guys are playing for the ultimate prize. And you were like, wow, what, what's the ultimate prize? And it was something like $67,000. When they, when they revealed it, it was like an odd, weird number. And it was like, oh, that's the ultimate prize? It was kind of like, that you could tell maybe like the bank defaulted on their loans. And it was like, oh, all right, this is all we got left. They sold Girl Scout cookies. These are the bonds. Anyway, I didn't mean to hijack. Uh, yeah, watch oh, uh, Bachelor in Paradise. Whenever I can make you giddy, it is a treat. So, <laughs> yeah, that was that really funny. Where does uh, where does Willem de Kooning fit in there? <laughs> so. Yeah, he's. He, I think he was on season three of, of Bachelor in Paradise. Okay, you have another question about Bachelor in Paradise? Uh, yeah, wait, so there's always... So we've got, uh, you know, ten people plus the odd man out, right? So we've got five couples, yeah. and so that person leaves... And then they just bring another person in. They just bring another girl in and then hope that the couples get shaken up. Yes. And then what is my incentive for what do the people get? What they what do they get when they stay together? You and I stay together for six weeks of the show. Do we get money at the end? What's my incentive to stay with you? So or what's my incentive to, to jump ship? It used to be money. In LA afterwards. Yeah. yeah, it's mostly for camera time, and now they really are saying true love. So they stopped giving out big financial prizes, and what they get is instead. But how would that work? Would couples get eliminated? How would you have a final couple? I don't even know. Okay, so Bachelor Pad, and this will be my hand. This will be my distraction. I was just going to say like, this better. I clearly, be. think so? this is I've been thinking about this is going to be my next week. <laughs> Bachelor Pad worked where the couples had to compete for money, and at the end, the winning couple got there, and then they did that. I don't I don't know what the term is for it, but when they say both of you make a decision to either keep it for yourself, share it, and split it down the middle, and if you both, if oh, one yeah, of yeah, you, yeah. if one of you keeps it. And the other one doesn't, you get it. If you both say you want to keep it, no one gets it. And if you both say you want to share it, you both share it. So the first year that did it, and actually this this girl Natalie gets, I knew I knew her sisters uh, from she lived in Peoria growing up. It's called the prisoner's dilemma. Oh, very good. Yeah. Very good. Yes, um, it is very good. So yeah. the she was on the show and she and the guy that won shared the money. So the second season of Bachelor Pad, the guy who won just kept it. It's outstanding. First thing I type in bachelor pad, Google auto completes to bachelor pad prisoner's dilemma. <laughs> Amazing. First, first Amazing. video, seven and a half minutes of this girl crying right now. That's, I don't know what that's one of the best bachelor pad Two, along with paradise hotel Two. These are like some of the best seasons of reality television ever filmed. Like they're up there with survivor season one, uh, uh, flavor of love season one, rock of love bust the second season of rock of love. <laughs> <laughs> they were on the bus. 
These are great. Big Brother, the one, like, Real World 3 with Puck and Pedro. First, Real World 1 with the original music, which you can't find anywhere anymore. All right. Joe, do you have a distraction? I do now. I'm going to start watching old seasons of Bachelor Pad. No, man. Because here's what's great about it. Because I don't know what happens. Well, now I do. It doesn't matter. That's the beauty of it. I, I found myself watching Bachelor in Paradise with the thought in my head, I don't care how this ends. I can really enjoy it moment to moment. I don't know what the goal of the show is still. I don't. Please don't explain it any further. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, I have plenty of thoughts on this and a deep analysis. I don't want to know. I literally just want to watch the season. Whatever happens, happens. I don't care about the history. I don't care where these, what season these people came from. I'm just enjoying watching in the moment. So you just like, I don't even know people's names. That guy's an a-hole. She's got to stick up her butt. You, 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 just, you just like Couldn't just watching people. single character's name. I know that's the crazy girl. That girl's crazier. She drinks all the time. Yeah, okay. That's all you, that's it. I feel like there would be value in investment of like, remember in episode two when so-and-so stabbed her in the back? Anyways, I'll report back next week. All right, that is our show for this week. If you did not like it, remember what Malcolm Jenkins said about bow ties. The beauty, my friends, is in the imperfection. Thank you to all of our listeners, the beautiful and unique Sparkle Ponies. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at JustNotSports. Email us tips, thoughts, or topics, JustNotSports at gmail.com. Let's end with some shout-outs. I'm going to give a big shout-out to Alexi Lalas and to Claudia from Fox Sports. Really helped us out uh, getting the interview done. Alexi was so great, uh, giving us so much time, talking about his career. It was really fantastic. And then Regis Woods, just a huge fan of that guy. We'll be cheering for him at the Paralympics. And uh, and go USA, man. That's all I got to say. Joe, Gareth, any shout-outs? Uh, I would like to echo you on... The shout out to Alexi Lawless. That was a fantastic interview. And if you told me wearing Umbros in 1994, watching him play that I'd be interviewing him that much later, I would have said, what? I also want to give a shout out to Mark Young, uh, a writer and on-air talent for Fox Soccer, uh, a good friend of mine. And he, I was texting with him as we wrapped that interview and he was like, Hey, tell Alexi, I said, hi. So Alexi, Mark Young also says hello. Wonderful. Joe, any shouts? Shout out to my brother, Pat, and his soon-to-be wife, Maria. They're getting married in Egypt. Congratulations, guys. Cannot wait to see you. That's why you're going to Egypt. Brother's getting married over there. He's lived there for a year. It'll be fun. <laughs> that is a dick wedding. No, that is a real dick wedding. <laughs> we got to travel, but it's going it's, it's to be worth it. It's gonna, yeah, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate destination wedding. Adam, any shouts? Yep, hold on. <clears throat> the ultimate destination wedding is like Mars. <laughs> <laughs> That's Elon Musk is getting married there. Yeah. All right. Crickets. Uh, yeah, I'll go with my usual list of shout outs. Uh, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Swanee, Meech, Ron Mack, and, uh, I can't remember his name. Justin Forsett's assistant. Uh, my other cousin, Ron. Like a, like a knife in my back. I love those guys. Anyway, booty rappers stay booty. Booty rappers. <laughs> stay booty rappers. Stay booty rappers.
Booty. Booty. Booty.